Hello, everyone, and welcome to Success Shorts. I'm Arul Chanel. Today, we're joined by Jessica Leahy, who has a phenomenal mind in the area of childhood and teenage education. Jessica is a teacher, writer, and mom with over 20 years' experience of teaching in both public and private schools. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, The Washington Post, and New York Times. And she's also the author of the life-changing New York Times best-selling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Jessica and I have a fabulous conversation where we get into all sorts of things, from parenting to education to what things are like during this COVID era. But that's enough for me. Let's go. Jessica, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. This is really exciting for me. Thank you. And thank you for that kind introduction. That was really lovely. Oh, you're very welcome. So we're going to jump into a lot of really cool stuff around parenting and education during a really interesting time. But I want to talk about the interesting time first, because I think that it's impacted everyone on, on a very different level. So I'm curious, like during this period, what are some things that you've learned about yourself or how have you acclimatized yourself to this whole COVID era? So the gift of failure came out of my teaching in middle school and getting really pissed off. And I mean that from the perspective of someone who I acknowledge I was on a very high horse at the time. Um, I was seeing the parents of my students as really getting in the way of the learning that I was trying to do with their kids and, and sort of set their kids up for success in a way that made sense for them. And I saw the parents as really trampling all over that and getting in the way of it. But I didn't really understand how the research on the different types of parenting and different kinds of teaching and, and how we parent our kids sort of leads back into that topic of learning and how kids learn. And I feel like all of the research I did for that book led to this moment where we're on top of each other, you know, all the time. Technology has pretty much taken over our lives and it would be really, really tempting to want to trample on my kid's ability to sort of have some autonomy over his life. And giving my kids space has been one of the most important things that I've been able to do for my children during this pandemic time when we're all stuck in the house together. And so I actually see now that the gift of failure was an incredible learning opportunity for me in preparation for all of this. And on top of that, you should know I'm married to an infectious disease physician and a medical ethicist who has been having to work really hard during this period. And, you know, having an infectious diseases physician in the house, you would think would either be really, really great or really, really scary. And it's kind of a little bit of both. Like I know a little too much about what the risks are out there. And yet it's also reassuring to turn to someone and say, you know, do I really have to sanitize my groceries before I bring them back in the house? And so having all that information could very easily lead me to just want to overparent to the nth degree. And yet, you know, the gift of failure, especially my experience with that as a teacher, has helped me stay grounded in what my kids really needed from me during this period, as opposed to what would make me feel better to give them during this period. That's really interesting to kind of see how that all played out with this. Mm -hmm. It's like the, mer the merging of the two. If you didn't have the one, if you didn't do all the work around the book, you may have had a very different experience during this yeah. period. But, but because you had that foundation to fall back on, it's led to a far healthier experience during this time. My hope is as people listen, they, they can pick up some of the learnings that you've learned along the way 
that can then help them and then even take the time and go in and do a little bit of work so that we're really stepping into a higher place of strength during a very volatile time. Because if we establish that foundation, I think we can handle all this a lot better. Some of that really just comes down to being able to tap into my teacher brain as opposed to my parent brain. And it's not an easy thing to do a lot. In fact, so I get to tour around the country and usually when COVID's not happening and do professional development, you know, and talk to kids, talk to teachers, talk to uh, parents. And when I talk to teachers, there's always this moment where we kind of have to acknowledge that it would be so great if we could constantly tap into our teacher brain when we're parenting. And that is just not how it tends to work. It's almost like there's a wall between the two when it comes to our own kids. And so reminding myself to tap into that teacher brain more often than my parent brain has actually also been a big help. So that's, you know, something that's in my toolkit that's not in every parent's toolkit, but you can tap into it just by envisioning what the best teachers you ever had, how they act around you and how they didn't give you answers, but led you toward your own discovery of the answers. And that's something I wish I could grant all parents is the ability to sort of toggle between those two things. Well, I think that takes mindfulness because I recall if it was in your book or maybe it was in Coddling of the American Mind where they talk about, you know, more than you know, when yeah. it comes to parenting, when it comes to how to handle these situations. So I think part of us just need to slow down. Well, and that message, I talked about it in my book, but I know um, Jonathan talked about it in his book as well. But that message really gets back to when you look in the chapter about the history of sort of how we got here, that message that sort of originally came from Spock and, and then Dr. Sears um, was, you know, you know more than you think you do, you know, trust yourself was the other message that, that we got, which is simultaneously so freeing because especially pre-Spock, um, parents were not told to trust themselves at all. They were told to you look to pediatricians and God forbid you look to your mother or your grandmother because those are just women with no actual knowledge of anything. You need to look to pediatricians to tell you how to parent. But that message of you know more than you think you do and trust yourself, those two messages were so reassuring, but also so scary, right? Because the minute we're told that we can rely on ourselves. It's like, wait a second. No, tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. It's that feeling of, you know, wait a second, you're going to let me leave the hospital with this infant. I don't know what I'm doing, but it can be reassuring if you just remember that one of the messages that I give kids a lot and parents a lot actually is you have to really revel in the process of learning as opposed to the end product. And so if you remember, if you can come back to the message that this is all a big process, this learning, this becoming a better parent, this becoming an adult. And if we can focus more on the process and less on the end product, then it actually is true. We do know more than we think we do. We just have to give ourselves a break and let ourselves get there in due time. And, you know, with some feelings of competence about knowing that we can rely on our own innate sense of what's best for our child, as opposed to just having this hopeful expectation that we're going to always do the right thing because you read all the right books and you, you know, you went to all the right classes and you had the pediatrician tell you what to do. I think relying on our own competence just takes some faith in the process. And, and the nice thing about having some faith in the process is that, you know, when our kids come home with a bad grade or do badly on something and we say, you know, sweetie, this is all part of a process. What I really care about is the learning, not necessarily the grade. They'll actually believe us when we say that if we really do have more faith in the learning process as opposed to the end product. And it kind of goes back to that whole not yet type of thing, yeah. you know, that it is, yeah. it is a process we're working through. You don't know it yet. 
And as parents, you know, we may have made mistakes, but we're not to where we want to be yet, but we're working towards it. That yet word is amazing. It's being, you know, it's part of the sort of Carol Dweck growth mindset thing. And it's in schools all over the place. That yet word is such a promising concept. You know, if your kid is stuck on their homework and you use that yet word, like, well, of course you don't know how to do it yet. You just learned it today. That yet is a word full of sort of growth mindset promise. Oh, it totally is. And it's not not just with this, but I mean, think about someone who's just like starting to work out again or they yeah. want to they have, oh, they have yeah. a vision for where they want to be. <laughs> like if we can figure out yeah. how to integrate more of the yet into our lives, we mm-hmm. could then be far more gentle with ourselves, which I think is just so much healthier because that'll allow us to stay the course as opposed to that initial hit of disappointment that then can throw things off. Um, Absolutely. But if if I'm thinking about when it comes to your story, So you had a unique start where you were teaching and you became a mom at the same time, if I remember correctly. So when you think about that beginning, because that's a really neat joint beginning versus where you are now, and you think about about one trait that you've realized is it has been extremely important to you during that time, what would that trait be and how have you kind of stepped into it and let that guide you? Oh, I hate to sound like a broken record, but it really is patience with the process. So I'm an English teacher by training, but I also became a Latin teacher sort of by default, which was really scary. I was sort of asked to do it because they knew I had a lot of Latin in my background, but I'd never been a Latin teacher and it was really, really scary. But if you think about, you know, if I, I tend to think about in my Latin classroom, I was so nervous A, that someone would find out I didn't know what I was doing. B, I was so nervous that my students would catch on that I was only a couple days ahead of them. C, I was really worried that my students would think that Latin was too hard for them if they didn't get the answer right away. So all of these things kept leading me to like jump in with the answer really fast to make all of us feel better. But having patience with the process of what it means to just be quiet for a minute and let everyone think. I ended up in my Latin class in particular with a rule that when we had a translation, when I gave the sentence in Latin, or if I gave it in English and they had to translate it to Latin, that no one could speak for 10 seconds because there's no way they're going to do it that fast. And even if they could do it that fast, then you're always going to default to the students who can just think that fast. And you're going to leave out the students who don't think as fast. You know, they're going to end up feeling dumb, whereas the kids who can think faster or are, you know, faster to stick their arm up in the air, you're going to skew the class in their favor. So having this patience with the process of whether it's translating, learning, processing has been the biggest change in my learning. I think I spent a lot of my first year jumping in to give the answer really quickly so no one felt awkward or frustrated with um, not knowing. And I spent a lot more time in my last couple of years teaching being really comfortable with quiet, really comfortable with silences that happen in the classroom while everyone's kind of wiggling a little bit or, you know, thinking or, you know, trying to figure out what to do next. Or figuring out what it is they don't know. That silence is uncomfortable for for a lot of teachers in the beginning and a huge gift that, especially with what we know now about how the best learning happens, it's a huge gift to students to give them that room and that silence. And plus, as teachers, it's a really good idea to shut our mouths more often than we, we do. And without the quiet, they have no opportunity to really think critically. It can't just be constant lecture. I was really lucky. I taught at a school for a while where we had outdoor trails. 
And every once in a while, when the weather was nice, I would go out and I would read them a passage or a poem or ask them a question. And then no one was allowed to speak for, you know, we'd walk like a quarter mile or something. And those moments of enforced silence really led to some amazing breakthroughs with students in terms of their thinking, in terms of their processing, in terms of, you know, the creativity of their answers. And so every time I, I get rushed, I try to remember those walks. Even as you were explaining what you learned during COVID, having patients there, and then with this example, I, I think that that's something that we should continue to bring to the forefront as something that's super important because everything right now is chaotic. I think it's going to be hard for parents too, because we're used to seeing our kids at the end of the day once they've had all day to process a lot of stuff. And so if we're sitting right there with them, if they're doing virtual learning, for example, it's going to be really frustrating for parents unfamiliar with the process of how kids get to understanding. We as parents tend to think of getting the right answer as understanding, and that's not always the case. And so we're going to get a really quick education in the virtues of patience and understanding that it's going to take our kids longer than, you know, oh, you learn the concept. Okay, now you're going to get all the answers right. That's just not how learning works. And we just don't get enough of an opportunity as parents to see that process firsthand. So this is going to be some new territory for some of us. This is something I was going to bring up a little bit later, but Adam Grant and his wife, the New York Times had an article. It's called uh, Kids Can Learn to Love Learning, even mm -hmm. over Zoom. One of the things they said in there kind of stuck with me, and I just kind of want to repeat this so that everyone can hear where we're coming from. It's whether students are in kindergarten or college, knowledge is always attainable. Teachers can and will catch kids up on their multiplication tables and periodic tables. But in school and in life, success depends less on how much we know and more on how much we want to learn. One of the mm -hmm. highest aims of education is to cultivate and sustain the intrinsic motivation to learn. So with mm -hmm. that in mind, what are some of the things that we should be aware of as parents that can potentially hamper that intrinsic motivation, especially during this school from home period? Okay, so I think there's two things that it's really important to mention. Number one, they used the term intrinsic motivation. And intrinsic motivation, in order to understand it and how to get it, you have to know what it is. So th there's extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. And extrinsic motivation are the things you think of as like, you know, when you give kids money for their grades or you uh, have a sticker chart for a kid or you threaten them with punishment if they don't clean their room or get a certain grade. Or if you're using surveillance on your kids, if you're watching your kids using their cell phones and you know where they are all the time or you're reading their texts or reading their emails, that's surveillance. Not saying you can't do it. I'm just saying we have to call it what it is, which is an extrinsic motivator called surveillance. It's anytime we're trying to exert our forms of control over someone else's activity, that really is an extrinsic motivator. And, you know, short-term bonuses for work, those are extrinsic motivators. This is all Dan Pink slash Edward DC territory. So this is not new stuff. But we've now almost 50 years of really clear research showing that extrinsic motivators do not work to foster motivation over the long term. If you want your kids, and I say this in Gift of Failure really, really clearly, if you want your kids to not want to learn math, to not be intrinsically motivated to learn math, then pay them for their math grades. It's a really clear equation. And that has been not only studied, but then there's metadata, meta studies that have sort of looked at all the data and broken down all the data. It's really clear. Intrinsic motivation is that 
thing that everyone has experienced at some time or another when you're doing something that's just the right level of difficulty. It's not too hard. It's not too easy. And you find yourself in what Mihajic sent me high calls the state of flow with the thing. And for me, it might be cross-country skiing or gardening or writing or chopping wood. You know, that sort of thing gets me into a real flow state because I'm sort of at one with that thing. I'm not doing it because someone's going to pay me after the fact for that thing. I'm doing it because I'm motivated to do it for all of my own internal reasons. And learning at its best, the deepest learning tends to happen when kids are in that flow state. So when they talk about intrinsic motivation, that's what we're talking about. Ideally, that flow state, intrinsic motivation is, oh, I really want to learn this thing. And what a lot of parents, it's been interesting. I was part of a masterclass parenting session called Parenting in Place for parents during this pandemic, talking about, you know, what to do over the summer. And a lot of parents reported that their kids were suddenly gung-ho on learning this thing that they'd never had time to learn before when they were overscheduled with their cello and their traveling soccer league and their all these other things. You know, anecdotally, my own kids spent most of the past six months completely immersed in digital music production. And he has been just in a flow state so much more of the time than he is usually in school. So for some kids, it's been a really great thing. And that intrinsic motivation, the way we get that requires three things. And this is, by the way, not just for kids. This is for anyone. This is could be for employees. Give people more autonomy. Help them feel competent and not just confident. And be connected in a very deep way with the person and help connect the person to the learning and to the purpose of the learning and to the use of that learning and to the ways they may be able to use that learning to make the world a better place or to improve their lives. So that autonomy, competence, and connection, that's how we get intrinsic motivation. And the problem is, is that now that we're in our kids' faces all the time, it's going to be really tempting for us to rely on those extrinsic motivators like sticker charts, like here on this checklist on the refrigerator, you get a new iPhone, if you do your homework every single night for the next month or whatever, those things do not work. Please, please, please stop using sticker charts. Stop paying kids for grades. Stop doing those extrinsic motiv uh, motivators that are undermining your kids' interest in learning in the first place. Because in the short term, it seems like it works because it does in the short term work really, really well. But over the long term, it will do the exact opposite of what you're hoping it will do for you and for your kid. Those three points, the autonomy, competency, and connection. Personally, since I've read, well, since I listened to your book, sorry. I, me too. I'm a big audiobook consumer, so I, I'm yeah. right with you on that. <laughs> but ever since I've heard those three points, I've really been trying to let those guide me a lot more. And they're really empowering for the kids. And I started to think about how that applies to bosses in the corporate environment as well. And we're all just big kids. We all yeah. have the same motivators within us. So for those who are listening who aren't parents or who are bosses at work and are looking for where is this applicable in that space, promoting autonomy, mm -hmm. driving competency, and, and promoting connection to the work, I think is just as important in that space as well. I did want to go down one tangent with you because this is something that I found really fascinating. So we've already mentioned the coddling of the American mind. And, Love it. And I feel like yours is almost the prequel to that piece. And with what we're going through right now, as we're seeing a transition in this Gen Z group that's coming through, because a lot of these kids who 
John and Greg were talking about in their book are now graduated and in the corporate space, but they're carrying this mindset forward that is part very progressive, but also part maladapted to owning the outcome. And this is really not meant to poo-poo parents in any way, but it's really coming from a place seeking goodness. You know, where do you think parents with good intentions kind of go awry? And what are some of the things that we could do so that we're not perpetuating that into further generations? I think where we go awry is we don't tend to have an exit strategy for our parenting. Like if you think about the way we tend to teach kids how to do something, and Julie lithgott Ames talks about this a lot in her book called How to Raise an Adult, that, you know, you take the way that physicians tend to do things when they're training new physicians, which is show someone how to do one, be there with someone while they do it, and then the person has to do it on their own. And that do it on their own, we tend to forget about as parents because it's faster if we do it, or we're worried that they're going to feel stupid, or we don't like seeing our kid get frustrated. So it's that extra exit strategy for giving them the opportunity to do it on their own that we tend to delay, 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 delay. And the problem is, is that when we delay it and delay it, we delay it into young adulthood. And then they're stuck never having experience done doing it by themselves. And I got in trouble a couple of years ago because I was talked about it. a parent who I met at a college campus who had no exit strategy for her child's chronic illness. And unfortunately, I mentioned the chronic illness and the people got very angry with me. But this mother was still managing her daughter's chronic illness, even though she lived a couple of hours away, managing it through a bit of technology that she could use to manage this particular illness. And I said, well, so what's your strategy for helping your daughter learn how to manage what will be a lifelong chronic illness? herself. And the mother admitted she didn't have one. And I said, but you live like two hours away. What happens if something goes wrong? And she's like, well, that's why I manage it so that something won't go wrong. And she had absolutely no exit strategy for her daughter to take control of her own body, which I see that as a huge red flag for that child, that poor child who feels like she doesn't even have autonomy over her own body. Um, so exit strategy, that's where we fall short. I think exit strategy is actually a topic that could be explored in so many different areas because it's it's not just this with our children. It could be anything in life. We're right. very good at getting into things mm -hmm. and becoming passionate about things and learning as much as we can, but we never figure out what's the healthy way to end something. So we've gone in a few different directions today. If we were to distill some of the key points that, that we discussed, what do you think would be like one or two points that you'd want to leave them with that they can start using today? Number one, we have to remember that this parenting thing is a long haul job. We can't judge our parenting in those small emergencies that happen every day, like whether this homework assignment made it to school or not. There's all kinds of stuff in Gift of Failure about evidence for why having that more long-term view on parenting just gives you the opportunity to take a breath and kind of calm down and say, okay, now this mistake will either not be a big deal or will be a huge learning opportunity for my kids. So if I rescue my kid in this moment, it will either not matter at all, or I will be making it so that my kid misses out on a really important learning opportunity. So stop thinking so much about those emergencies, start thinking more about this sort of long-term view. And again, focus on the process and less on the product. When a kid brings home, whether it's a high grade or a low grade, if you can orient your language toward that process, and, and I'm not saying you can't 
get kind of upset about an F and be really happy about an A. But if you could rein yourself in a little bit from putting that report card up on the refrigerator and instead say things like, interesting grade. What did you do to get that grade? What are you going to repeat next time? What are you not going to repeat next time? Did you talk to the teacher to find out what went wrong? Did you talk to the teacher to find out what went particularly well this time? I use an anecdote a lot about a really low grade I got on my very first law school exam. And my first instinct on getting that really low grade Instead of going to talk to the professor about what went wrong, my first instinct was to quit law school. That is what I do not want for kids. That's why I'm out there talking to parents all the time, because I want kids' first instinct to be, huh, I should really do some thinking about what went wrong, what went right, seek some guidance. That focus on the process of becoming better each time is what helps us succeed, not necessarily how you do in each individual endeavor. So those are the two biggest things I tend to tell people as they head out the door. That's great, Jess. Thank you so much for sharing all that. You've definitely impacted me and hopefully you're going to be impacting more and more people as they continue to hear your message and and to read uh, The Gift of Failure. I definitely recommend everyone who has kids, check that out. And with that, that's all we have for this episode of Success Shorts. Hopefully you found today's topic useful. And remember, have fun, stay curious, and keep it short. (music) 